Our country's history is complicated, and it is not always easy to review. But you don't make it better by ignoring it or glossing over it. Uh, those words today from Murray Sinclair, of course, was the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And one of the recommendations coming out of that commission was to have today as a national day of truth and reconciliation. And so for the second time now, Canada is officially marking September 30th as a day of truth and reconciliation. And as Murray Sinclair says, to not gloss over the past, to come to grips with the past. The past is complex. But to also talk about how we can move forward. So we'll be spending a lot of time today talking about truth and reconciliation, what this day means, what it means to Canadians, uh, the progress we've made, where we still need to make progress, and what we expect uh, this to achieve. So we'll get into that on the program this afternoon, 403-974-8255 is the number I want to hear from you today. Obviously, we're watching some other stories, including the situation in Ukraine, the situation in Iran, some other news unfolding here at home. As part of our coverage today, I wanted to get to some of the comments uh, from our leaders. We'll hear a little bit of what the prime minister had to say at that ceremony in Ottawa today. And I mean, I'll say this without making it too political. You know, the prime minister made a tremendous mistake last year. Uh, really bad judgment call on his part to vacation in Tofino with his family instead of marking the occasion of this day. He's obviously learned from that. We'll get to some of what he said earlier today. I want to begin, though, with some of the comments uh, today from Premier Jason Kenney speaking uh, this morning at uh, a ceremony in Edmonton talking about truth and reconciliation and what this day means, what it is we're trying to achieve, the work we still have to do, uh, but the developments that we can celebrate where we have made some progress. Here's uh, some of what Premier Jason Kenney had to say earlier today. This day will not serve its purpose or the dignity of First Nations if it simply becomes a day of mourning. Because it must also be a celebration of resilience. The resilience of the Indigenous people overcoming adversity. We cannot go back, despite our best wishes, and undo tragedies, crimes, or injustices of the past, but surely we can learn from them. And today is about rededicating ourselves, all in this society, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, those like myself whose families have lived here for generations, and those who have just become Canadians, all to learn a little bit more about the history of the First Peoples of these lands and our obligations in the treaties to them and with them. Also to rededicate ourselves, not just to the symbolic, symbols matter, action matters too. And I'll tell you that my time as Premier in, my, in the relations that our government has had with First Nations was inspired in part by the advice I took from the great Cree chief, Willie Littlechild, who said to me as I was running for this position, he said, Premier, or said, he said, Mr. Kenny, what we need is actually reconciliation. Reconciliation. And that's become our theme. And I, I'm so excited to see that happening. I want to thank and honor the knowledge keepers who, uh, despite the residential schools, Despite the Indian Act, despite the suppression of, of Indigenous languages and ceremony, kept all of it alive, kept hope alive. I also want to thank uh, chiefs and leaders, councils and others, who understand the best way of righting the wrongs 
is to create a future of opportunity where every Indigenous child can be raised not in poverty, not experiencing multi-generational trauma, but with hope and opportunity for the future. And that, you know what, that requires prosperity. It is true that man liveth not by bread alone, but it's hard to live without bread. And kids, if they're raised in poverty, with all of that, it often implies, sadly, addictions, mental health challenges, family dysfunction, can end up carrying on the intergenerational trauma. Thank you all for the efforts to break that intergenerational chain in, in, in communities. And I am so excited to see the positive things that are happening. And I hope that's finally what we can also celebrate here. Celebrate the positives. I'm going to say this to all my non-Indigenous friends here. Thank you for being here in a city of 1.2 million, area of 1.2 million. Uh, a couple of hundred of you showing your, how seriously you understand these issues. But if us non-Indigenous people only ever think about the tragedies and the injustices of the past, when we think about First Nations people, we are not honoring them sufficiently. Let's, on a day like this, not just look to the past, let's also look to the future. Two days ago, I signed an agreement with 23 Central and Northern Alberta First Nations taking a $1.2 billion ownership stake in seven pipelines that will generate tens of millions of dollars of revenue for them and their nations to improve housing, education, social services, addiction and mental health services, and to reinvest in other economic opportunities thanks to the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation that we've helped to create to bridge the gap between the economic aspirations of First Nations and the lack of balance sheets, the lack of financial experience in, uh, to make big deals. That revenue, that economic development, that partici ownership participation in the development of the resources that lie below the lands that first were inhabited by First Nations, that means breaking the chain of poverty, of addiction, of a lack of opportunity for many future uh, First Nations children and Métis children. So, yes, we remember, we mourn, and yes, we look forward to the future with hope in practical ways to make recon reconciliation uh, part of what we do every day. So some moving comments there uh, this morning from Premier Jason Kenney. I want to, to continue the conversation and build upon some of those themes. Uh, joining us uh, here on this uh, September 30th, this day of uh, truth and reconciliation, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Stephen Buffalo, prominent Alberta Indigenous leader. He's president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council, member of the Samson Cree Nation. Mr. Buffalo, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me today. Uh, let me ask you, first of all, this week, and I know you're supposed to be there, weren't able to make it, but a, a major announcement we've got now, uh, there's a group of First Nations and Métis communities that are acquiring a significant minority stake in seven Enbridge pipelines. You know, we've talked a lot about the importance of these kinds of partnerships. This one's a pretty big deal. Let me get your thoughts on that, first of all. Oh, of course. You know, uh, when when this was first announced, the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corp, our, our, our premier, Jason Kenney, had a vision and he heard the First Nations that there was a need 
to participate in these infrastructure projects that are happening in and around our traditional territories. And of course, we're, we're looking at the, the Northern Gateway, we're looking at the Keystone XL, we're looking at all the pipelines at the Trans Mountain uh, specifically. And, and of course, there, there needed to be a mechanism to, to engage First Nations to be part of these uh, projects. Uh, you know, obviously, like if every Joe, every Joe, every day, Joe Canada understand that we're stuck under this Indian Act. We have to find unique and different ways of creating our own wealth, our own to deal with our own issues. Uh, and but you know, th- this deal is paramount. You know, this is the set the new standard. It set the bar. And and having 23 communities, the First Nations and Métis communities, to to participate is, is tremendous. You know, it, I, I think we're starting to achieve what we we were mandated to do. Yeah, what's going to be the impact on these communities as a result of this, do you think? Well, I, I think it's going to be very positive. I'm hoping, like, we'll, we'll probably see long-term revenue, uh, revenue streams coming into the community. And I'm sure, you know, there's definitely job opportunities, uh, service contracts, what have you. Uh, but, you know, it, it's definitely a stimulus to, to uh, not only, we're, we're, we're like, we still need oil and gas, and, and we need these infrastructure uh, <laughs> mechanisms to move it. And, and uh, it, it's great that, you know, First Nations are, are definitely now part of it. You know, our, our uh, regulations in Canada are world-class, probably the best in the world. And, and I, I'm confident that uh, everything is going to go great, and there's different, different streams of revenue coming to the nations now and, and the settlements. When we take a step back and look big picture, and as it ties into to September 30th and, and truth and reconciliation and being able to move forward, how do you see these kinds of issues fitting in when we talk about partnerships, you know, building these relationships, creating economic opportunities? How, how does that all tie in, in your view? Well, I, I think it's a key component. You know, uh, this is reconciliation. You know, that's a term I've heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, we can talk about reconciliation, but what are we really doing about it? You know, uh, obviously there was a mandate way back in the day of Sir John A. Macdonald and, and seeing what can be done to our people. And, and uh, obviously it didn't go well. And, and, you know, that spirit and that remnants has come to the forefront. You know, uh, and, and they, they found what they did in Kamloops. And, and they knew about it. You know, the truth and reconciliation people knew about these, you know, children that were not found. And, and, uh, and, and it's sad as it may be. You know, I think now we're, we're seeing a big change. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen a Harper government. We've seen Stephen Harper stand up in the parliament and, and apologize on behalf of the Canadian government. That was step one. You know, and, and, and uh, we also seen the Pope, you know, unprecedented. Come to Canada on, <laughs> after First Nations, Malco Willie Lowchild, you know, advocating, you know, you should come apologize. You should come apologize. And he came. He came and apologized to Canada. And, and now, you know, and... What I'm seeing in, in the position I'm in is mainstream industry has that door open, you know, not only because of the environment, social governments, the, the ESG, it's, it's, it's primarily because they, I'm starting to see that it's, it's the right thing to do, you know, that the, the communities where they're working, it's close by, and, you know, and that engagement is starting to flourish somewhat, and it's really creating that opportunity. Again, you know, this government, doesn't matter what government's in power, we're stuck under this Indian Act. First day, 643 First Nations stuck under the Indian Act. Yeah. How do we change that? How do we change it? We change it through the type of dialogue we're having now on the economic space through natural resource development and what have you. It's, it's great. It's, it's starting to really gain momentum. 
Yeah, it feels like it is. I mean, you know, there, there has been a lot of progress, and I think we still got a lot of work to do, right? We shouldn't be complacent about some of the, the positive strides that have been made. And when we talk about steps that we still need to take, maybe that's where the focus needs to be, right, on, on looking at the Indian Act and looking at where there's still obstacles to progress. Absolutely. You know, like right now, we're still in the issue of uh, gover- governments and, and some corporations making decisions for us. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's now now the next step is, okay, the inclusion right from the beginning, I think, is a great start. And, and of course, you know, uh, we, we have a lot of the decision makers that decide somewhat, somewhat our faith that never been to an indigenous community, that never seen some of the conditions our communities are in. Uh, come try the water, see if you like, <laughs> you know, yeah. things like that. Or, or you know, some, some of the uh, substandard housing, some of our people have to live in. And, and uh, you know, but uh, I, I think, again, at one point, like, corporations are starting to understand and, and see, well, we got to do something better here. And, and, of course, Enbridge and Suncor have made great strides with their relationships and, and uh, are doing a lot better, you know, in, in understanding, okay, we got to help. We got to do something. We're, we're making tons of money here, but let's, let's, let's open the door somewhat. And, and it, it, it's, it's always going to change. You know, it's a living document. It's, it's, there's no cookie cutter to this. And, and, and really, if you really want to come down to it, it it's about relationships. You know, what kind of relationships that person has with, with communities that they're trying to work with. So you're absolutely right. It, it's, 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 it's not over. We've we got a lot of work yet to do yet. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, one thing about history is that we can learn from it. You oh, know, yeah. and, and, and finding solutions to go forward. And that's, that's really the reconciliation moving forward. So it's, it's, in my eyes, it's very positive. But, again, we still need to do more Indeed. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, much more of the uh, Indian Resource Council. It's ircanada.ca. Stephen Buffalo, really appreciate uh, your insight. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Oh, thank you for having me. There you go. Some important words from uh, Stephen Buffalo. He's a member of the Samson Cree Nation here in Alberta, President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council uh, on this September 30th. As no validity, no legitimacy. No legal standing. This territory remains Ukraine's. Uh, It will always be a part of Ukraine. We will never recognize the purported annexation of this territory. Okay, that's the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who was meeting today with Canada's Foreign Minister, uh, Melanie Jolie. Uh, So Secretary of State Blinken rejecting uh, Vladimir Putin's annexation of four parts of Ukraine, 15% of uh, Ukraine's territory. There was a whole big grandiose ceremony today as Putin signed these documents, whatever they were, to try to make this formal. This follows, of course, these recent sham referendums in these regions that paved the way to this declaration. Vladimir Putin says these are now parts of Russia. The thing is, Ukrainian forces are still making advances in some of these territories. And so where does that uh, escalate this, this whole situation to? Uh, there was a, a resolution brought forward to the United Nations today to condemn these illegal referendums. But, of course, Russia vetoed that. Now, Ukraine's president has talked uh, today in response to all of this about his country officially joining NATO. Now, the initial word from the White House, Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, is that Ukraine's NATO bid should be taken up at a different time. Some significant develops, uh, developments today, nonetheless. Joining us uh, to talk more about uh, what this all signifies, where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome back to the program this afternoon, Aurel Braun, who is a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto, also a center associate at the Davis Center at Harvard, and a senior member of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. 
Professor Braun, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's start with what happened today in Moscow and Vladimir Putin trying to change the uh, situation on the ground to try to unilaterally declare these parts of Ukraine now part of Russia. What do we make of that, first of all? He is sending a dual message. One message is to the people in the occupied areas. And that message is that once the Red Army is in one place, they will never retreat, that this is now part of Russia. People who live there are subject to the draft. Any resistance is hopeless. It is futile. Uh, at the same time, there's another message that is being sent to the Western world, and that is attempt to intimidate and to divide the West, to say to them, now if you are helping Ukraine to regain these territories, this will be considered an attack on Russia itself, and we may have to resort to nuclear weapons because this would be a war of self-defense defending the motherland. And you will notice that Vladimir Putin has given not to subtle hints mm-hmm. about nuclear weapons. So we are seeing with this referendum also an attempt at nuclear blackmail. The speech today was uh, was was somewhat alarming. I, I think people have noted almost how, how bizarre it was. But, um, you know, this, this rhetoric from Vladimir Putin about Western hegemony will be smashed. This is inevitable. We must do this for our people, the great historical Russia. I mean, what did you make of his, his comments today? Not surprising the least. Uh, we uh, in the West often think that he's a chess player, but he isn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the great uh, world champion, former world champion, Gary Kasparov pointed out, Vladimir Putin is a gambler. Uh, he was a fairly cautious gambler, but he felt that he had a green light. That, uh, in the White House, they had a very weak uh, inept administration, that Western was divided, NATO had largely disarmed, uh, and he would have an easy time taking over Ukraine. This would be a way of boosting his domestic popularity, which was going down. You will recall that before the invasion, there were extremely repressive measures taken, not only against opposition leaders, such as Alexei Navalny, but also the closing of civil society organizations. So he miscalculated, but it was not a wild gamble. Because had it not been for uh, President Zelensky, who turns out to be a Churchillian figure, uh, had uh, Zelensky followed uh, the Biden administration's advice and fled, Vladimir Putin might have won. Mm -hmm. So now he's trying to uh, play the deck again, reshuffle the deck. And he still hopes that even though he's losing on the ground, the Russian forces are doing very badly. It turns out that the Russian military is as corrupt as Russian society under Vladimir Putin. He hopes that the West will be divided, that the West will be intimidated. And sadly, the kind of statements that we see from Anthony Blinken and from the American administration are, let us say, rather disappointing. This kind of uh, response that we will never uh, accept the annexation. And these are sham referendums. I call them charendums. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they're not going to accept them, that's not good enough. Uh, they didn't accept the annexation of Crimea, but... Uh, Russia has held on to it uh, for for many years. That is not going to impress the Kremlin. Much more needs to be done. Uh, the West needs to become proactive rather than reactive. So what might that look like in practice? The West has been slow walking many respects help for Ukraine. The uh, foreign minister of one of the Baltic states made a rather bitter statement after what was uh, a truly impressive victory by the Ukrainian forces 
taking uh, several thousand square miles in the Kharkiv region. And he said, had the West supplied the armament that Ukraine had sought earlier, this could have happened before. In other words, many lives could have been saved. Germany, which had promised to have a 180-degree change in its policy, is not implementing that. The West is not rearming quickly enough. There was a meeting of uh, uh, 40 countries that produced various weapons who tried to see if they could increase weapons production. That should have been way back. The NATO should never have let their forces run down to this extent. The Germans should never have allowed themselves to become this dependent on Russian energy. So at the moment, there has to be a very sharp increase in military support for Ukraine. Ukraine needs to be able to take back these territories. And in terms of nuclear blackmail, United States also has nuclear weapons. So do uh, two other members of NATO. We went through the Cold War. We were able to deter the Soviet Union, which was a superpower. Russia is but the remnant of a superpower. And if we allow Russia to successfully use nuclear blackmail, Ukraine will not be the end of Vladimir Putin's ambitions. It will be only the beginning of those ambitions. Well, I mean, Ukrainian forces are still making progress in some of this territory that Vladimir Putin has now declared to be Russian territory. And given what he said about the use of nuclear weapons to defend Russian territory, I mean, how seriously do we need to take that? Anytime anyone makes a threat about using nuclear weapons, we need to take it seriously. But we also need to contextualize it. And that is, is Vladimir Putin some suicidal fanatical leader who believes that there's some reward in an afterlife? Or is he a corrosive kleptocrat who lives in a lavish lifestyle, wants to protect his family, and therefore he cannot afford nuclear war either? Uh, I believe he also understands that a nuclear war should not be fought and it cannot be won. So very likely this is an empty threat, unless the West becomes so divided that he somehow concludes that uh, a nuclear blast could impress the West. And this is why it's so important that uh, Western countries do begin the process of rearmament. It's, of course, preferable to spend money on schools and hospitals, uh, on uh, uh, universities. I would prefer that, certainly. But there is the geopolitical reality in the world, and that is that hard power is something that we need to deal with. Consequently, countries have to meet in NATO the 2% guideline. In Canada, we're not anywhere close to that. Germany, which had pledged that they would meet that by at least 2%, they haven't done it. Right. And uh, Olaf Scholz is under attack for members of his own coalition. Um, the weapons that are being delivered to Ukraine are inadequate. Uh, much more needs to be done in terms of tanks, uh, anti-aircraft, uh, in terms of uh, more intelligence sharing. If Ukraine is to successfully take back more territory, and they've proven their credentials. This is not Afghanistan. This is not a government that runs away. This is not a military that collapses. They are worthy of Western help. And so that help, ammunition, uh, uh, heavy weapons, they need to be provided really urgently. And this would be a proper response to Russia to say to them, you are not going to win. You're going to lose this war. You generals, you in the secret services, you know the reality. You know that Vladimir Putin is leading you down a very dangerous path where you are just going to uh, suffer terrific damage 
and you are not going to prevail. In terms of NATO membership, I don't quite understand why there would be this kind of statement while we're considered uh, uh, this another time. Why not say the schedule will be determined by Ukraine and uh, the Western nations, mm-hmm. and we will proceed with this uh, as quickly as we can. The message has to be sent to Russia that Ukraine is gone. Any hope that they could turn this around, that they could somehow swallow Ukraine piecemeal, is uh, a proposition that Vladimir Putin needs to be disabused of. Well, certainly on a day where Putin was trying to project strength, it was uh, an interesting message, wasn't it, then, from, from Vladimir Zelensky to say, you know, here's where we're at, and we're seriously considering joining NATO. We want to join NATO. We're going to apply to join NATO. What kind of a message did that send to Putin? Well, that is the right message, but it has to resonate in Washington. And Anthony yeah. Blinken did not say the right thing, in my view. Uh, this wishy-washy kind of statement, this deferential uh, at this timidity, this is where Zelensky said, we are not afraid of Russia. What are you afraid of in, in the case of NATO? Mm-hmm. Other nuclear weapons, Russia is by no stretch of the imagination a superpower. Their military is not 10 feet tall. Uh, uh, they have suffered uh, grievous military losses. They have proven themselves to be fairly inept. This is not to dismiss their ability to destroy because uh, they have been ruthless and they have not been restrained by any uh, precepts of international law or morality. But at the same time, they do not have limited resources. Uh, We see that hundreds of thousands of Russians have already voted with their feet and they have fled Russia because of this uh, uh, so-called limited draft. And so Vladimir Putin may be vastly more vulnerable than we think, but uh, we need to basically take steps that send an an unequivocal message to Moscow, and that message has to be, you will not win. It's not just that we're not going to recognize what you grabbed already, but you will lose that territory, and you will suffer catastrophic consequences, and uh, don't even think of using nuclear weapons. But the last part, shouldn't be enunciated. It should be demonstrated. The United States can do all sorts of things, move to DEFCON 3 and so on to signal, as it was done in 1973, uh, when during the Middle East crisis, uh, where Russia had threatened to, and this was the Soviet Union, uh, which was a superpower, threatened to deploy troops in the Middle East, uh, Nixon and Kissinger, uh, the response was to call uh, DEFCON 3 and to move... uh, the naval fleet in the Mediterranean coast to the East Coast, the Russians got the message. They backed down because Russia is not going to commit suicide over Ukraine. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we should remove any temptation for them to even consider using nuclear weapons or thinking that nuclear uh, blackmail works. Indeed. We'll leave it there. Professor Brown, appreciate the insight as always. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you for having me on. All the best, sir. There you go. That's uh, R.L. Braun, who is a uh, professor at the uh, University of Toronto, uh, professor of political science and international relations, also an associate of the Davis Center at Harvard University. His thoughts on uh, the developments today and uh, what's needed, but what this all signifies about where things are at.
All right, welcome back. Much more to get to uh, on the program here this afternoon on this Friday afternoon, this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. We'll have more conversation uh, on that side of things and a few other things we'll get to. Obviously, an update on what's happening uh, in Ukraine, some important developments there. Uh, do want to make sure as well we're focused on what's happening in Iran. Tomorrow marks two weeks since the first protests uh, following the death in custody of this 22-year-old woman, Masa Amini, arrested by the morality police, accused of uh, improperly wearing her hijab. So September 17th is when we saw the first protests, and that's continued to grow and spread right across Iran. Not just women taking to the streets, obviously, and removing and burning their headscarves, cutting their hairs, uh, but uh, Iranians uh, in general uh, taking to the streets in large numbers in cities right across the country, chanting death to the dictator, women, life, freedom. I mean, we've seen protests in Iran before, but this is all really unprecedented. Maybe things are at a tipping point, though. Where does this all go? How does this all end? Are we going to see a further crackdown from Iranian security forces? I mean, already there have been hundreds uh, of arrests that we know of, uh, dozens of deaths apparently associated with these as well. It's been difficult to get information out of Iran as authorities have moved to try to cut off the Internet, which maybe speaks of the magnitude of what's happening. Tomorrow, there's going to be protests happening in cities right around the world, including here in Canada. Uh, to stand in solidarity with the people of Iran. Someone who's uh, organizing uh, the Toronto rally tomorrow and has been following all of this very, very closely. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Kave Shiroz, a lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Kave, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for focusing on the story. Yeah, and I think it's important that we do. I mean, as I alluded to, it, we could be at a bit of a tipping point here in terms of where this all grows. These protests have continued to, to spread, and, and I think they've got some momentum, but uh, we may see a crackdown from authorities in Iran. What's your sense of where we're at? And not only uh, can we anticipate seeing a crackdown, we are seeing a crackdown. So as you noted, uh, you know, the authorities have basically shut down the entire country's Internet. Um, the last reports I heard, I think, were about 50 or 60 people killed. Um, I mean, now those are just the official numbers. The real numbers are probably considerably higher. Many, many people detained. Uh, but the protests, as far as I know, are not stopping. You know, people are so tired of this regime um, that they are continuing to stand against it. And uh, that's part of what we're trying to reflect tomorrow in our global day of action. So tell us a bit more about, you know, what the message is tomorrow. I mean, it's not just in, in Canada, obviously, as I alluded to, we're seeing protests tomorrow in cities right around the world. But what is the message? Yeah, so, I, you know, we're, we put out the call and, and people around the world answered. So we've got protests happening in over 130 cities across the world, which is unbelievable. And the message is consistently the same. So these protests are led by women, and one of the key chants is woman, life, freedom. Um, so those are the things that we're asking for, equal rights for women. Um, you know, women should, you know, the system of gender apartheid in Iran should end. Women should be equal. We want um, accountability for the Iranian regime's 40 years of human rights violations. Um, so in order for those things to happen, I think the natural end point is that we are calling for an end to the Islamic Republic that's governed Iran for, for four decades. We're calling for democracy and human rights in that country. Right. And that's an important point, because this is not a system that can be reformed, right? That, that's exactly right. You know, there, there has been an effort um, to reform it. In the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was what was then called you know, the Iran reform movement. Um, and, and people tried within the very limited um, space available in Iranian politics to get reformists elected to push things through. And that was just an abysmal failure. It went nowhere. Um, you know, the, the people that were the head of the reform movement were themselves loyal to the regime. But even then, uh, you know, they ended up in prison. Um, so this system has proven itself very inflexible. And I think, you know, we've hit the point where a revolution is just inevitable. 
Right. And are we in the midst of one? I mean, is it fair to, to call this not just protest, but, but a revolution? You know, it seems a lot like a revolutionary movement. You know, tens of thousands of people are in the streets. They're battling uh, government security forces, and they're openly saying what they want, which is, you know, death to the Islamic Republic, death to the dictator. You know, those are not messages of, you know, let's reform, let's tweak the system. It's it's a fundamental uh, demand for a, a shift in their governance structure. So I, I would say it's a revolutionary moment. Whether or not it achieves its goal right away or it takes, you know, a year or two uh, remains to be seen. But um, I think the revolution has started. In terms of the international response, obviously we've seen the international community come together to, you know, impose sanctions on Russia, target Russian officials, try to alienate and, and ostracize the regime. Should we see something similar here? Is is there a roadmap to follow? What needs to be the response against her? Yeah, I mean, I would I would hope there would be a more robust uh, response. Now we've heard politicians from, you know, the, the democratic world say all the right things. They have condemned Iran. Yeah. Um, you know, they've said we stand with the people. Those are all wonderful things. In terms of action, I have not seen much yet. Uh, you know, there are talks, for example, that Canada is going to impose some sanctions. They, you know, the government announced it, but hasn't actually told us the details. Um, the U.S. government is saying the same. They're trying to help with the technology of getting Iranians reconnected to the Internet, which I think is vital. Um, these things are slowly happening, too slow for my liking. But I, I, I hope that there is more sort of policy shifts rather than just rhetorical commitments. So what what might that look like? What more can we do? Um, you know, we ought to increase the cost to Iran's leaders and Iranian officials that are committing these human rights violations. So key thing that a lot of activists have for years been asking for is for, for Canada to list uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is a really notorious um, military force in Iran, to list them as a terror organization. You know, these, this organization, among what it has done to so many Iranians, it shot a plane out of the sky full of Canadians, um, right? So we ought to be doing that. We ought, you know, Iranian regime officials, a lot of them come to Canada with their money and their families because they want to repress people back home but live in comfort here. we got to expose them um, and not allow them to come here. And those that are here, we ought to expel them. There are a lot of policies like that where we can increase the cost on the human rights violators and we can isolate the Iranian regime and work with the Iranian people to, you know, set up a new democratic government. I've seen today there's a push, and I mean, I, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere, but it would make sense, a push to have FIFA block Iran from competing in, in this year's World Cup. I mean, FIFA is the same organization that put the World Cup in, in Qatar to begin with. Um, but that, that, that would be a, a powerful symbol, wouldn't it? It, it would be an incredibly powerful symbol. I, I don't know. I mean, FIFA is not the most um, ethically upstanding organization in the world, so I don't know if they'll take the right step. Um, but I, I should note, regardless of what decision FIFA makes, uh, the Iranian national team has actually, you know, to their credit, been outspoken. The players, anyway, have been outspoken. Uh, they had a game, I believe, yesterday, two days ago, where they all, you know, wore black uh, jackets over their jerseys because they didn't want the flag to be displayed. They didn't want Iran's flag to be displayed. Some of them have taken to social media to support the protesters. So I would hope this is not interpreted as an attack on the players, but just the general institution and the, the regime that's behind this team. What have you noticed happening in, in Canada, in the West, from, you know, those, those voices, those groups that have been supportive of the Iranian government that, you know, have essentially taken up the cause or are apologists for the Iranian government? What, what's happened to them? Have they fallen silent? 
<laughs> one of the best signs that this revolution is is really a revolution and that it's succeeding is the fact that a lot of people, you know, I spend a lot of time online tracking what these people do and say and the, the apologetics they offer for that regime. A lot of them have suddenly changed colors and are now, you know, shouting in favor of, you know, these protests and so on. Um, what that signals to me is that they realize that the, that the Islamic Republic is kind of a sinking ship. Um, and that, you know, sooner or later, hopefully sooner, it will be overthrown and that the people will remember um, who served as a lobbyist and, a, uh, and an apologist for this regime. And that's the thing in Iran. I mean, you know, we don't know what the, the government's capable of and, and, and who knows. And, and maybe they will try to quell these these protests. But that they can the idea that they can make all of this just go away, that seems more implausible, like this is here whether they crack down on these protests now it feels like something is almost fundamentally or, or permanently changed in iran i absolutely 100 percent agree with that i think what happened for a long time for over four decades this regime continued to uh repress its citizens and commit human rights violations some of them really horrific human rights violations but the game it played was that it repressed people at home but outside it it, it pretended that it was like a normal regime and western politicians um you know helped with that charade they said oh well you know the iranian people are maybe some of them dislike the government but some of them like it and uh, you know, we can do business with these guys, and over time they'll reform their ways. I, I think what's become patently obvious in the past couple of weeks is that the Iranian people despise this regime. They want it gone, and that this regime is utterly inflexible, will not reform, and that there's just no business as usual. There's just no going back to, you know, signing agreements and, and handshakes and so on. Any Western politician that does that from now on, I think, will rightly be ostracized by the international human rights community. Looking forward to seeing some of the powerful images, big crowds right around the world tomorrow, sending a message to Iran. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Much more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Kabe, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Thank All you All the so best. Uh, Kabe Rose, a lawyer, human rights activist. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad and obviously uh, monitoring closely events in Iran. The week from today, a seismic change in Alberta politics. I guess this time next Thursday, Jason Kenney will still technically be premier. But that evening, the UCP will crown its new leader, and that person will, by extension, obviously be the next premier of Alberta. Now, look, we've gone through many times, you know, the reasons why uh, this situation arose, where maybe Jason Kenney went wrong with the party's base, why he uh, ended up having to resign as leader, and you know, the impact of this whole leadership race. And yeah, we look, we don't know who's going to win. You know, we could end up with a candidate who maybe hems pretty close to the path laid out by Jason Kenney. Maybe we end up with somebody who takes a, a much different approach on certain issues. Like I said, we'll find out a week from today. But we do know that it's happening. We do know that Jason Kenney's time as premier is going to end and it is going to end before the next election. It's weird that after, you know, the political dynasties we've had in this province, that we've had a few premiers in recent years that won an election and then didn't make it to the next election. And Jason Kenney joins that, um, that club. But does that mean that, that he was a failure? Does that mean that the brand of politics, the brand of conservatism he represented has been discredited? And maybe it's going to take time to really fully answer the question. Right? What was Jason Kenney's impact? What is his legacy? What did his time in office mean for conservatism in both Alberta uh, and in Canada at large? 
I mean, you know, for a while, Jason Kenney, even though he'd come back to Alberta, was probably the most prominent, maybe even the most important conservative on the national stage. He's arguably not that right now, but I think he was at one point. It's a really interesting piece up at thehub.ca, sort of exploring some of these questions. What was Jason Kenney's contribution to conservatism, even his contribution to Canada? And to what extent does this whole situation take away from that? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts is the uh, author of this piece, uh, Sean Spear, is editor-at-large at The Hub, thehub.ca. Sean, good to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. It's great to connect. How important is, is this leadership race in terms of conservatism in this country? I think, you know, with Pierre Polyev, uh, you know, ascending to the, the head of the federal conservative party, I think he's maybe become the most important figure in conservative politics in this country. Does Alberta matter as much right now, do you think? I think it does for for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, it's always been uh, certainly in the for the past quarter century or longer the kind of center of gravity of conservative politics uh, in Canada. You mentioned the role that Jason Kenney has played, not just in you know Alberta politics, but of course at the national level. To say nothing of uh, Stephen Harper, uh, who of course represented an Alberta riding. Um, but I think it also kind of more generally, Rob, says something about the state of conservatism. I think, you know, in a way, um, Alberta may be a good proxy for, I think, some broader trends that are occurring within the world of conservative politics, not just in Canada, but really across the Anglo-American world. And in that sense, um, you know, I think what's transpired over the past several months should cause, I think, conservatives, even those outside of Alberta, to kind of stand up and take notice. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I mean, as much as we're we're kind of writing Jason Kenney's political obituary here and talking about him in in the past tense as a politician, I mean, I don't imagine he's done with politics. I I don't know what the future holds for Jason Kenney, but I mean, he's he's still going to be around. I think he's still going to be a factor. What's your sense on, on that question? Oh, that's a great question. I, I don't know, Rob. Like, you know, I, I think your, your your listeners are some of the most sophisticated in the country, and they'll know that uh, over the course of this leadership campaign, there's been some tension between uh, Premier Kenny and the presumptive front front runner Daniel Smith, mm-hmm. assuming that polls are correct and she's going to win uh, this race next week. I suspect. Um, the, the now premier will um, disappear in a way from the, the scene, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, but I think you're right. Um, he's probably not going away forever. If for no other reason um, that, uh, you know, his work over the first, uh, you know, in the context of the Harper government um, over the first couple of decades of this century, uh, in terms of building relationships between uh, and links between conservative ideas and conservative values and um, immigrant communities across the country mm-hmm. remains uh, the kind of key to the future of conservative politics in Canada. Um, you know, it's something, incidentally, Rob, um, for which Kenny is not just uh, noted in the Canadian context, um, but uh, but really across Anglosphere conservatism. So I guess it's a long way of saying uh, I think my gut is we'll hear and see less of him, particularly in the Alberta, after um, next week's vote. But but I also think you're right that he's going to continue to kind of loom large in um, in conservative politics for uh, the foreseeable future. 
been interesting in recent weeks, you know, Jason Kenney is almost kind of unchanged or almost feels a little bit liberated. I think we've we've seen a different side to him, one that might have served him well earlier on. You had the chance to share a stage with them. Uh, you were at a conference uh, in Red Deer recently, the Canada Strong and Free Network. And, uh, you know, it seemed like he was pretty open talking about his thoughts on conservatism, you know, the last few years, maybe what the next few years look like. What was your read on him at, at that, that event? I think there's something to that, that, you know, that this whole experience is, is sort of liberated him, him in a way. Um, you know, what was fascinating, Rob, as much as uh, having the privilege of being able to interview the premier on stage, was frankly talking to a lot of others around the conference. I would say probably on balance, conference attendees probably uh, were supportive of getting rid of Kenny. Um, um, as opposed to being Kenny allies. But even that was, was kind of interesting. And you do get the sense um, he was really navigating through the pandemic uh, a pretty complex political terrain. You know, yeah. it's not to say that he didn't make mistakes um, and that he ought to be absolved of any responsibility for his political fate. Um, but it would have taken a, you know, a, a Skilled politician to navigate what what increasingly became a, a kind of uh, a, a politics of extremism on either side. You had uh, you know a growing share of of conservatives you know effectively um, demanding of the, the waiving or elimination of all pandemic restrictions, and you know the, re- the rest of the Alberta population, which I think at times was worried that the government wasn't taking the pandemic. Seriously enough, right. um, and, and in that sense, he was kind of damned if he did, and and, and damned if he didn't, and and that that really um, that really was the message for me speaking to people at, at the conference that people were pissed on at him kind of on either from either side, <laughs> and 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 in that sense, I'm I, I'm not sure if if there's anyone really um, who would have been able to to kind of navigate um, um, that complex context. As you argue in the piece, though. Uh, you know, you can you can separate sort of the pandemic response maybe from some of the other policy initiatives that Kenny pursued. And I think, you know, if we hadn't gone through a pandemic, much more of this would be front and center in talking about his record. But as you note, uh, the Kenny government lowered taxes, cut regulations, reduced spending, balanced the budget, expanded school choice, significantly expanded private health care deliveries. That, that this would be seen as a very successful conservative government, maybe under different circumstances or different contexts, right? Exactly. Um, you know, if you think about it, Rob, this is the way I've kind of come to think about it, that, you know, I think cons- big and small C conservatives have, you know, generally performed well in the 21st century at the national level, um, um, you know, under the Harper government. But across, you know, many of the provinces, you know, I think there's a sense that politics have been tilting in a center left direction on questions of the size of government. We've seen several provinces of the country, country, across the country running massive deficits for most of this century. We've seen, um, you know, stalled progress on, on health care reform. We've seen um, little progress in most provinces when it comes to education reform. And in fact, a kind of tilting in the direction of, you know, if you'll forgive me, a kind of wokeness when it comes to uh, curriculum. And, and so, you know, against that backdrop, I think there's a reasonable argument um, if you kind of set aside some of the, the animus that built up in the context of the pandemic, that this was a pretty remarkably successful 
provincial government. I would put it in the same category with the Harris government in Ontario in the 1990s, which similarly had a pretty ambitious reform agenda, and the Klein government um, in Alberta over the, roughly the same period of time. And I kind of think that, you know, as we get some distance and perspective from from the pandemic, um, I, I think people will probably come to appreciate that, again, you know, you may disagree with the premier on the pandemic. You may even disagree with the premier's sort of approach or personal comportment. I heard a little bit about that at last week's conference, but mm-hmm. the results kind of speak for itself. And this was a government that, you know, if you're a conservative, um, you know, I think uh, give you a lot uh, to, to see, um, uh, you know, to see real success in. It does seem interesting, I, I think, what's happening in conservative politics, and maybe it is in part due to the pandemic. I mean, Jason Kenney, I think, would be fair to characterize him, at least I see it, as a more conventional conservative. Maybe that kind of conservatism has fallen out of favor at the moment. Maybe there's a, a desire for something, I don't know, angrier, more combative, maybe a little more populist. What, what, what do you think? I think that's right. Um, you know, and if I can just kind of reflect personally for a minute, I, you know, people have observed that not just in this most recent article that, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you drawn attention to, Rob, but maybe in a, in a few articles over the past uh, several months, I've kind of stood up and defended the premier. Yeah. Um, and part of that, I think, is <laughs> at some level conscious or, or subconscious, sort of, you know, in effect, defending my own conservatism, because I can't help but think if there's not room for Jason Kenney in the world of modern conservatism, if he's not conservative enough for some of these uh, voices uh, in the conservative ranks, then I don't think I am. And I, frankly, I'm not sure if anyone is. You know, Jason Kenney, is, you know, and many of your listeners know, um, you know, cut his teeth in the fights over taxes and size of government in the 90s and was a, you know, a key architect of uh, the Conservative Party of Canada through most of this century. And, you know, as we talked about, has a pretty impressive uh, conservative reform agenda. And so I, I think you're right. I think in a lot of ways, um, for a whole host of reasons, some of which are quite legitimate, Sure. Um, and, and some, you know, I think it's important for listeners to hear, reflect um, the kind of antagonism from the left. Um, but all this to say it sort of led to uh, a state of conservatism that's a bit crankier, um, its elbows are a bit sharper. And, you know, in that sense, I think there's a case that Jason Kenney just didn't sort of personally reflect. Um, the, the current moment. And I would just say, Rob, you know, I don't know what you think about this personally, but I would just say, you know, I, I, even if one understands where some of that anger and frustration is coming from, I just think it, it, it's sort of unproductive. It's unproductive as a political matter. I think, you know, people want to vote for someone they want to get a beer with, not someone they want to smash something with. And I, I just think it's a kind of unhealthy way to, to live your, your life. And, and, you know, one of the things I asked Jason, uh, I asked Premier Kenny at, at the um, at the conference last week is, you know, do, do you get the sense that conservatism is moving from Ronald Reagan's morning into America to Donald Trump's American carnage? And if you think it is, then I, I think it sort of behooves conservatives of good faith across the country, including Alberta, to understand, you know, what's going on and how we can get back to that kind of aspirational, optimistic conservatism, because I think that's a winning message and a winning a winning formula, um, um, you know, no matter where you are or kind of what your lot in life is. Um, and so I hope this is just a, a kind of temporary blip rather than a, a, a 
kind of more, more permanent shift in, in the world of Canadian conservatism. That's a really interesting point. We'll leave it there. As I mentioned, your latest, it's up at the hub.ca. Sean Spear, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Cheers. Uh, that's Sean Spear. He's uh, editor-at-large at the hub, the hub.ca. So his piece, uh, Defending Kennedy, uh, Kenny's Record, uh, says we should recognize his contribution to conservatism and to Canada. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.